Welcome back to the Mutus in Paris podcast. I am Zen, and this is a podcast about all things travel, be it food, what to pack for your next trip, or your next exotic destination. And with me again is Kristen. Where? Actually, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, actually, Kristen can't be here today. Unfortunately, she got her third vaccination shot and uh, is not feeling up to the task. But unfortunately right so but uh, but fortunately we still have emily hello thank you zed <laughs> i'm glad <laughs> i could be here you know we'll ho- hopefully survive without Kristen. <laughs> yeah we'll be fine but we still have a third surprise guest for you guys and we have a special guest who is author julie skolnick hello julie hello hi, hi emily and zen nice to meet you both you too <laughs> So we're very lucky to have Julie today. Julie is the author of Paris Blue, a memoir of first love, which was just released in mid-October. Her book her book is an art experience of being in Paris in the, in the 70s to study music and finding love. All in the backdrop of the cafes, streets, and concert halls of Paris over 30 years. So I think we should just jump right in. And uh, Julie, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe a little bit about your book? Yes, of course. Um, Let's see. Uh, I'm a flutist, a classical flutist who lives in Boston, and I run my own chamber music series. That means that I I choose all the music and all the musicians, and I put these programs together, and I connect with my audiences. And for 25 years, it has been my magnificent obsession. it's, it's really all about storytelling, frankly. And meanwhile, um, for about four decades, I've had a story that I've been burning to tell. And I finally found a publisher. And as you said, it found its home and it's in print as of just one month ago. Um, it's a story that began when I was 20 years old and on a school year abroad program in Paris. Um, I had I was a student at Wesleyan University, and I did the junior year abroad program. And you know, like everyone who arrives on the streets of Paris, um, I was blown away by the beauty, the evocative Seine, the uh, the cobbled streets, the churches, the bridges, you name it. I was no different from anyone else who was under its spell. But when November arrived, and it was, and the sun stayed hidden behind the thick dark clouds, I started to feel very lonely. You have to remember that this was pre-internet, pre-cell phones, pre-all of that. So if you're just a 20-year-old living in an old lady's apartment, and many of us, many of my friends didn't have phones in their in their meager student quarters anyway, it could be very lonely. So I searched for a chorus to join to fill that void. And on the third rehearsal, and I found the best chorus, it was a chorus that sang with the Orchestra of Paris with a very famous conductor, Daniel Barenboim, conducting. It was too good to be true. I couldn't believe it Um, because I had always loved singing, but this also brought me with 200 musicians, uh, well, well, if you call call singers musicians, (laughs) uh, 200 people who love to sing in one big chorus, and it was an incredible find for me. I felt as if I was home. 
then on about the third rehearsal or so, I was I looked up over my score, and you have to picture that there were about two hundred singers in a semicircle, with sopranos on one side and basses on the other, with altos and tenors in the middle. Um, I I think I wrote it this way that it was as if a movie camera panning across these two hundred voices stopped at just one and the camera wouldn't move. And it was a very strikingly handsome man who was about 29 or 30, sitting at the edge of the bases. And um, this is where uh, I first set eyes on the object of my obsession and infatuation. And it's where the, the story of Paris Blue begins. So um, I won't tell the whole story, but what happens and what happened is that when the story, uh, when this love affair ended and I was 22 and I had gone back to Wesleyan to finish and a very big dramatic story, which I do tell in great detail in the book, I, I'm just jumping to one of your uh, things you had asked me about earlier, which is how did, how did the book evolve? How did you get from there to here? Right. As you right. said, it was yeah. 40 years. Well, what happened is that even though I didn't keep any kind of journal back when I was 20, um, at 22, when this whole thing was behind me and I was kind of in shock from heartbreak and the end of it, I spent three weeks or so writing down every detail, every conversation, every memory that I had, which was so completely and indelibly inscribed in my memory that I remembered so many details. People are all asking me, how did you remember entire conversations? Did you keep a journal? And I did not keep a journal, but I did it, you know, about 40 years ago when I was only 22. So um, that's how I was able to get all this stuff down. Then I did not write the book then. I wrote that part of the book. And over the next four decades, I kept hauling it out. Every five or ten years, I would work on it. And um, then finally, and I was so excited to be in this process of writing that I wrote too much. I put everything but the kitchen sink into this into this story. And, you know, it followed me into middle age and to meeting my husband, having children, the life I had then, and how this person, Luke, continued to play a part because I kept searching for answers to find closure, blah, blah, blah. But... Um, Finally, about, I don't know, about 20 years ago, so I, it had already been a couple of decades, I did try sending it out, but I hadn't yet read a book about writing memoir. And I hadn't yet learned that memoir is about one story and you can't throw in anything you want. You can't throw in just any tangential stories that don't lead the story forward. So I got rid of 100 pages I <laughs> they all ended up on the editing floor if it didn't have to do with that. Even even my months in Paris, I whittled those down so that everything I wrote about did not take the reader away from the main point of the story. Mm-hmm. And so as of about, oh, and at one point, but maybe still 20 years or so ago, an agent that I had sent it to before I actually made it very good said, you know, I love this story, but can you make it into a novel? I made it into a novel. You know how much work that is. And I, I fictionalized a lot of it. And then she didn't like it at all. And then I, oh, got, no. then I, got, <laughs> I, I got discouraged and I threw it back in the closet for another 10 years. 
And then about a few years ago, I was determined that I knew I had a story and I had had to tell it. So I made it better, got rid of 100 pages, found a manuscript consultant who had fresh eyes to help me with some of the flashbacks. Because if a story covers 30 years, it's really hard to figure out which things are vital to keep and which things to get rid of. I had to consolidate things. Anyway, her fresh eyes were, were the support I needed to get me to cross the finish line after so many decades of fits and starts. And then I found somebody who loved it. And um, that's it. That's how I got my book in print. And that's why it's so, so momentous for me because this book has been like a member of my family for four decades. You know, my family made fun of me about it. The, oh, the book, book, (laughs) the book, the book, the book, you know, when I turned 50, my husband wrote a limerick for me and, he mentions the book, you know, about a Frenchman who was quite a schmuck. And if you insist on the tale, read the book, that kind of thing. <laughs> so it was, um, it was so gratifying for me when I finally got it published. And the most gratifying thing is that I knew I had a good story. And now I have emails pouring in every day. It's like the gift that keeps giving. Every day, somebody writes to me and said, Julie, I got your book two days ago and I couldn't put it down and I loved it. And it brought back my own first love and it brought back Paris and it was so evocative and this and that. And so I am just flying high now that this is um, it really a reality. Yeah. That's amazing um, to hear how, what an effort it was over the years, how many writings and rewritings and, the fact that you at 22 had the idea or I guess the, the sense come over to write everything down, yeah. um, which is amazing. And then yeah. you kept that too over the yeah. years. Yeah. To help you write Thank you. Books, and, at, which- and at the beginning, you can imagine I didn't, well, I think there's this pre-computers even. So at 22 was around 1978. That's when I did it all longhand. I mean, people just oh my goodness. Yeah. How many notebooks did that take up when you were just three, three spiral notebooks, very messy in a combination of English and French. And, wow. and of course I was crying basically the whole time. So the ink was smudged and it was brown ink and some, oh of, some of it well, I couldn't <laughs> even make out. Um, but yeah, then finally, uh, when I learned how to use a computer, um, I did, so I transcribed that into my computer, but I was slow, you know, I didn't know how to use anything. My husband had to make a list that said, number one, turn computer on. Oh, I remember that part in your book. So from like, from the beginning when you started to actually put words to paper and then having a, a finished product, I mean, like, how, how long was that period of time? About 45 years. That's 45 incredible. Years. Well, let's say 40. 40 is enough. 40. Yeah. <laughs> so we should expect the second part yeah. roughly. And everything um, that didn't make I'm it dead. into the first one. <laughs> yeah, when I'm dead. I don't know. You know, the fact is, that's a very good point you made. Um, I, you know, and it's not like I can hide this anymore because the, the synopsis starts with the date and says how old I am. <laughs> So anybody can figure out how old I am now. And it's too bad, but I had to do it that way. But I mean, um, the, oh, I forgot my train of thought. Oh, I was going to say that I'm not sure. Um, oh, yeah. I was going to say that 
the book ends 25 years after my experience in Paris, but obviously it's been now 45 or so. So I'm 20 years older than I was when the book ended. So there is more to the story. However, then it might even it might even interest people, but I'm not sure I can do a part two. I don't think it would do. I had a point to make, and it was all about memory, and it was about first love, and it was about sure. you know. But I don't think anything that came after that is going to be interesting enough to make an, another book out of. So right. Yeah. Okay. I have to ask. I feel like everything you wrote in your book is real really like it really is very real are there any characters or any i guess subplots or anything that was fictionalized or even embellished just for the story or is it completely authentic completely true 100 percent yeah incredible because i have a confession to make i didn't read i just when i looked at the cover i only read paris blue i didn't even look at the memoir part yeah um and i just started reading yeah okay <laughs> i really did not pay attention to the details oh, i just started reading. discussion because she's like i i didn't realize it was a memoir yeah. and it's like oh you did it's like no, I that's was- not, but you see that's a huge I, that's a huge compliment because and it's a huge compliment because a few people well many people have told me that it reads like a novel because it's such it a good story right and it does. Right. It reads like a novel. And I didn't even question it until I think you mentioned, even when you mentioned your first name, Julie, in the book, I didn't even question it. It wasn't until I think, I think Luke um, like said your last name, Skolnick. And I go, wait. And I flipped the book like over and I go, Every person he plays is Jackie. Yeah. If you realize it. Yes. I mean, so so. I, just, I just thought you had named the, the main character after yourself. Oh, that's so It was a book that you read and then i go is this is this her story what and then that's when i was like i need to do some digging and then i realized on the back of the book it says like biography autobiography in it yeah i was like oh it's a memoir and i put all the pieces together and then that's kind of what pushed me to like read to continue reading um i actually read it all in one sitting i took a couple breaks to eat but i pretty much i opened it and i was like i started reading i put it down i picked it back i like went to go get a snack but i pretty much just oh, read it nice. on one swoop because I, yeah I, I didn't know it was your story until like halfway through the book oh wow that is that is so nice to hear and i was just telling zen that that's the greatest compliment i've had from people um like if i go on to my amazon reviews uh, nine out of ten people have said I could not put it down and I read it in two sittings or something like that. So that is so nice because that is ultimately what a writer wants. It, it, you don't want somebody to say, sorry, it's taken me like a, a two months to get through your book. You know, you don't want that. But I'm so glad that you said that thing about the novel because that was the, the greatest compliment I got from John Irving, which was just a fluke that I got him to read it. And his <laughs> quote was, wait, I, his quote, and I have my book in case you would ask me anything, but his quote was so amazing because he said, not every true story is like a good novel, but this one is, and not every memoir of first love had a satisfying ending, but this one does. And the confluence of first love with becoming an artist makes this memoir special. So that was really nice. That's really nice. And that's why I keep feeling so satisfied that this happened because I knew I had a story, you know, the, the plot twists are just like 
like life imitating art imitating life. You can't make those things up as well as the actual story was. But to get back to your question, though, Emily, the names are obviously changed, except for me, my okay. children, and my husband. Um, all the other, and Barenboim, the famous conductor. Right. All the other names are changed so that I, I wouldn't get sued or brought to court. <laughs> <laughs> but the actual like conversations and places you visited, stories. Every single thing is true. Every yeah, single that's thing. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. I wouldn't even know. I tell people that I wouldn't even know how to write fiction. And that's the thing. When I wrote, when I tried to make this a novel, I was so out of my element. All I did was put it in third person and change the names. It was basically my memoir, thinly, thinly disguised. I did have one scene that I loved that was completely fictitious. And it involved killing him off, killing <laughs> Like writing my own ending the way I wanted to. End. Um, but he, he dies of an aneurysm. And then I go to Brittany to his funeral. And um, and the little boys choir that I mentioned several times in the book, mm-hmm. they were singing there. And they were throwing his ashes into the ocean because he loves Brittany so much. And then the 40-year-old, a 40-year-old man, his son, whom I met at age three, and now is 40, sees me and comes over to me at the funeral. This is my only good scene that I hated getting rid of in the fictitious version. He comes over <laughs> and says, um, are you the American? I, I wondered if you might be here. And then he says, you know, when I was going through my father's things, I found something you might want. And, um, and then he comes over to my inn that night and he takes off his satchel and he hands me the big pile of letters that I had sent Luke. Anyway, so it, and then I at the end at the bottom of the pile is one letter that he never sent, which explains the ending. So isn't that a good twist? But um, in other words, it, it explains his shocking behavior of how he acted when he came to Boston. But anyway, so that was my one fictitious thing in my novel version. I, I thought that if this were to become a movie. It could be like a dream sequence or something like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. But well, it, hang on for one moment. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I think this is a good time to make a really quick commercial break. Sure. And we'll be right back. And we got a ton more questions. When you look back upon your life and you see all the things you achieved, certainly none of them started with inaction. And when you're planning for your next career journey, find us, the University of California, Irvine. We've over 80 convenient online certificates to help you navigate the future, and we're the perfect Sherpa for your next big adventure. Find us at ce.uci.edu. Okay, we're back. And Julie, what a great story! I like I like the fiction version of it too. And you know, whenever they take a mo- something and they turn it into a movie, they always ask you to make some changes. And that's going to be a great uh, <laughs> dream sequence. I, I think. know. I know. <laughs> um, so let me ask you. Um, you know, there's a lot of books out there, and there's a there's a lot of romance books, and there's a lot of um, other books that are out there. Who's who do you think your books would appeal to? Uh, who's who should be reading this? Yeah, yeah. Um, is it the so musicians? Is it the historic? I mean, who do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's a great question. Of course, when you are filling out these questionnaires 
for even your publisher, they want to know all this stuff too. How do we market this? You know, and, and my publicist wanted to know that as well. Well, fortunately, it really, I have found that it resonates across many boundaries. But if I had to say, so, and I'm not going to say women more than men, because just as many men have written to me, um, and, and, and it's not chick lit and it's not romance lovers, but, um, I would say that people who like a good story, a good love story, really. And of course, people who love Europe and especially Paris and France love it. And then music lovers, especially classical music lovers, because music plays such a big part in the book. And, um, as you know, since you both read it, uh, because there are so many pieces that are almost real characters in the story, I have listed all just half the pieces that I mentioned at the back of the book. And if anybody yeah. wanted to go to my author page, which is just julieskolnick.com, you can click on any of those pieces and it leads you to a YouTube performance. So I, I'm hoping that when people are reading it, they know that they can go listen to the music as they're reading it because it means so much more if you can hear the music at the same time. You know, that was one of the few things I thought should have been changed was I read the book and then came to the very end oh, and yeah. I saw that it's like, oh my goodness. It's like I would have, you know. I know, but so. you must have wondered, didn't you wonder when you saw a footnote over each music thing? Like I was well, hoping that knowing me, I didn't notice anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, maybe, maybe, um, and, and I could probably make this change. I mean, would it have helped you if that appeared at the beginning of the book? Or some, yeah, it might've been, I mean, I think it would have been interesting to have it up front. It's just like, here's some, you know, while you're reading, here are some selections I suggest that would make this. I don't know. I don't. You know I'm what? not a writer. No, that's so. not a bad idea. It could almost be a prologue. You know, it could be. Yeah. It could mm -hmm. be. Yeah. At the beginning, saying, "As you're reading, please refer to these links on the, the, the second printing." The exactly. second printing. Exactly. Second yeah. yeah. <laughs> Since this is actually print on demand, I'm able to make these changes right now without waiting. That's great. So I could do that. Yeah. I'll ask my publisher if they like that idea that's a good point yeah yeah i mean you wouldn't want to send it to a youtube link because youtube links can change but definitely to like your own personal page to think, send it back out yeah. to a current link yeah. yes exactly so. exactly yeah so right. do you have a series of musical suggestions beyond the ones that you have already listed that we should be listening to well, I know it's, it's almost like asking you, do you have a favorite letter in the alphabet? There's, <laughs> or if you have a favorite when you're, yeah. when you're a musician, it's very hard to answer that question because we love so much music and music is our life and it's, it imbues, it, it gives meaning to every day of our lives. You know what I mean? So I couldn't say, um, I mean, when you read the book and you see how I talk about Mahler, for instance, how Mahler can be the incarnation of love, you know, and if you're not, if you guys are not big classical music lovers, you might think, what the hell is she talking about? <laughs> so then maybe you might go and click on that movement that I'm talking about, yes. which is the Adagietto movement from his symphony number five. And if you listen to it a few times, maybe not the first time, because when something's new for a new listener, you may not hear it right away. But if you listen to it three times, by the third time, you might say, I get it. This is like heart rend to rapture back, back and forth over and over again. And you might get it because sometimes there's no way to describe 
the effect that music can have on a person in words. It's only the music that can have that emotional effect on you. So I'm really hoping that when people do read those parts, they'll understand why that movement in Beethoven's Ninth, when we were sitting on the stage together, why it was so powerful and why every time I hear it for, you know, for the rest of my life, it will always bring me back to sitting on the stage that day in Paris, you know? Right. Yes. I... I'm definitely going to check out your page after this at the end of this episode because I want to listen to the music too. Okay, um, I found it really interesting uh, that you're a flutist, but also um, you partook in choir too, which yes. is such an interesting, um, I guess, when you're abroad and like you said, pre-internet, pre-phone age and to get involved or you know figure out what you could do to spend your time and not be yes. so isolated. Yeah. Um, you sought out a choir, which is just incredible to me. Um, I That wouldn't have crossed my mind. Uh, but I'm, obviously, if you didn't think of that, we wouldn't have a story. <laughs> so that was amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, You're so cute. I mean, you know, if you, you would have thought of it if you had already been singing in choirs from age 13, 14, 15, 16. So I sang in choirs in music camp at 13. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to Exeter, which was my high school, that was really what saved me there. I looked forward to the choir rehearsal so much. Then when I went to college, of course, I joined the chorus there as well. So it was really just a, a part of my equation I of see. happiness. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't like, oh, I think I'll take pottery. It wasn't like... <laughs> I was going to say, thank God you didn't take a pottery or like a French book club yeah. or something yeah, like yeah, that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was kind of amazing. That's part of the serendipity of all these things that happened to me in Paris, like the way I found the chorus, for instance, was absolutely amazing. I had already tried to find one a different way and had this horrible traumatic experience. Oh, you remember, it's in the book where I show up at this church and this old man makes me wait in the middle of the room and then I just run out in shame. That's right. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that was the first try of finding a chorus. Then I said, I'm not going to do this. And then a week later, I just happened to see the newspaper ad when I was sitting in yeah. a cafe. So it's pretty oh, amazing. Speaking of cafes, I know you like to frequent, there were a handful or just one, I can't remember correctly, which that you like to frequent the most. What was, for those who haven't read the book, or yes. are wanting to you know visit Paris and not sound like an American uh, tourist, what yeah. would you recommend ordering? Oh, ordering. I thought you were going to ask yeah. me about the cafe. I was going to ask the cafe. I was, okay, well, we first. Both. Yeah, are they still, is it still yeah. around? Well, yeah. <laughs> there are two that I love the most. And it, I'm not special because a million people love them the most. You you know this because when you go onto all those Facebook pages, there are one million pages about Paris. And, and there are blogs <laughs> and there's Instagram and everything. But I had my own personal favorite because it was the place we went each time after those concerts where we sat and it was La Closerie des Lilas, Closerie des Lilas. Um, and because it is, um, it was also made famous by all the intelligentsia from the 50s, Americans like Hemingway and, you know, Fitzgerald. They all frequented many of these cafes in that era, 50s and 60s. And um, for me also, there's a big grand piano in the entrance. There's always a pianist singing the American songbook, you know, Cole Porter and Michel Legrand, French writers as well. And, um, 
I mean, you name it, Jerome Kern. So there's nothing more fun and festive. And so I go there every time I'm in Paris, I go back and um, relive it, really. But, you know, I have new memories now that I've created uh, since then because I always meet new people. It's the kind of cafe where you always talk to the people next to you. It's crowded and bustly, and then there's music going on, and so much fun. And in in even before I met Luke, it's not his real name, by the way, but I'm just <laughs> going to stick with that. Um, even before I met him, I sat there alone. It was not far from where I took my classes. So in the gray skies of Paris, the drizzly days, I would go there at 4 p.m., get a pot of tea, and just do my work there as well. It was really comforting, the best way to, uh, you know, fight the the blues in Paris. Yeah. So anyway, what to order? I mean, that's a very silly question, Zen. <laughs> I mean, what? <laughs> that was my question, but I mean, um, first of all, I never ate any food there. All I did was sit oh. in the cafe part. They have a fancy restaurant right next door. So this was the bar cafe that I sat in. And then right connected to it were the white tablecloths and the fancy food. So, and of course I was a student, so I didn't eat in places like that. I had a very small repertoire of what I ate when I was 20 years old. I ate, you know, French onion soup, salads, pizza, and then Chinese food because there are a lot of really good Chinese restaurants there. Oh, and then of course there was the very French couscous places, Algerian, Moroccan places that sold that kind of food, crepes on the street that were very cheap. You'd watch a guy make a crepe, drop an egg, mush the egg around with the Gruyere cheese and hand that to you in a little triangle, which you'd eat because you're cold. And it was mm-hmm. that memory too. I've never been able to recreate that memory I, I try, but it's never like the first time that you have your first street crep walking around Paris, you know. Does that answer some of your questions? That does. Okay. Thank you. Of course. Of course. So, so beyond, I mean, you, you've mentioned a little bit about a lot of the changes that it turned out to be, you know, you had books and books and, you know, pages and pages. Um did you change the is did you have do you feel that it has the same vision of when you first started writing it or have you changed perspectives or changed the way that you presented the information from when your first draft I should say That's that's such a good question actually and I hope I can answer it properly Um I was hoping I that question made sense but okay. it, oh, it, it, to- it totally makes sense um, there are a couple different parts to it. The first is that you would think that the first part one, the part one is being the 20 year old in Paris and falling in love, right? You would think that if I'm telling the story now as, as in middle age, that my perspective would really be different. But in fact, that part did not change very much because I think I told it just as if I were still 20 years old with that kind of naivete and open to the world type of thing, inexperience, real, really inexperience and, you know, new to love, new to romance and all of those things. So that part did not change. The book as a whole, of course, evolved because when you think about how I ended it, 
and I hope that this is what makes the book a bit special. It's all about what we do with those memories. You know, I think I say, what did I know at 20 about memories that could last for decades? What did I know at 20 about things that would stay with you, um, you know, as a part of your DNA for the rest of your life? And I think what I hope is special about the book is that I'm not saying many people think, oh, when you have a traumatic experience in your youth, you bury it, you amputate it, you don't think about it ever again. But that was not my attitude. And also, that's why I had such a fantastic, I still have the same husband, but I was fortunate to have a husband who didn't mind my revisiting this when this guy came to Boston and I wanted to find answers. You know, he didn't have a problem with my doing that. A lot of people would not be so cool with that. I don't think I would be so cool with it (laughs) if it it were reversed. But by the end of the book, I am saying things like, um, I use that Wordsworth poem as the model of, you know, these memories are what we should cherish and not mourn, not mourn the old you and say, oh, I was crazy and stupid and young. But thank God for those memories. It's who we are today. It's, It's how we see our life today through you know, we see, the memories still filter through our daily experiences, and I hope that's what makes us a little bit different from some from some memoirs that look back over time. Well, you know, I'll be honest. I read when I read the book is the the first third in comparing it to the last third is like the the first third was written. I, maybe it's just me the way I read it or the way I perceived it, but it was written much simpler, and it. I don't know if that was your intention, but it felt like it was simpler and, and, you know, I felt it like was slightly cruder in the way you express yourself. And towards the end, it's just like, as you grew older, it felt like the way you express yourself was very different from the first third of the book. Interesting. Um, yeah, I have not, I wasn't, yeah, yeah. I have not heard that per se, but it's, I totally accept it. And it makes sense, actually, because, because I no, no, I think that you're probably right, because I did write that early part when I was that age, just about, it, you know, just about. It feels different. It feels yeah. different to me, yeah. the, the way you express yourself. Huh. And so I don't know if it was the words that were, um, yeah. I don't know how much you directly pulled out of your notes, yeah. um, but it, it felt very different from the last third. Anyways, that's how I read it. So Mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. It's funny, but my, um, Oh, doesn't make any difference. Nothing. Cut. (laughs) (laughs) So where now, now you got a book. People are reading it. I mean, do you, do you have further plans with this? Do you, um, do you tend to have an option? Do you, are you done? Do you have, is it cathartic? And you, I don't need to do anymore. And I'm going to express myself only through music. No, no, I wish, I wish I felt that it was all over now, but no, because, um, you know, after spending so many decades on it now, I really, I don't want just, uh, you know, I don't want uh, a handful of people to read it. I mean, so far it's doing really well. And I've noticed in a month I might have 800 or, or more books sold, which I think is considered pretty good. But I don't know. I don't understand numbers at all about that. But I do hope that I get a wider, that I can cast a wider net and that more people, you know, if you if you have a burning desire to tell a story, then you you want more people to read it, obviously. Um, unfortunately, yeah. the marketing part is not the fun part, 
and I do hate <laughs> I hate the social media part too. It's just <laughs> I can handle one thing. I can handle Facebook, but I can't stand having to worry about Instagram and instead worrying about Twitter and LinkedIn. So I have a, a young techie person from California who helps me. When she sees me put something on Facebook, then she'll try to do more with it for me. And then, of course, I I did hire um, you know a PR firm to find people like you and other podcasts and other uh, places who might want to do book events and things. But it's, it is a lot of work to try to spread spread the word. So I'm hoping that word of mouth helps a lot too. That's why I'm grateful to be on your radio show. Yeah. Um, as far as if you do have more books, I guess, would you tell, would you continue to tell your story of France and Paris or do you think you'd have other stories to tell? Good question. No, I think this one is I think this one ended in a proper place. Even if there were more things that happened and people might be curious as to what they were. Um, remember that having good stories um, do not a book make. You have to find a point to make. As a matter of fact, what happened to me in telling the first, this book, um, and I and I hope I'm not forgetting to answer your other question. But um, so I had the story down, but I hadn't figured out what my point was. And as I mentioned in the book, my initial title was Lilies That Fester from a Shakespeare sonnet. And it was just about how something that powerful and romantic turns sour. But that wasn't a good point, you know. And then one day, it just came to me. The title came to me. It wasn't exactly Paris Blue. It was um, a certain shade of blue. But I then, that was way before Fifty Shades of Grey came out. So I still thought I liked a certain shade of blue. And then when the whole Fifty Shades of Grey happened, I knew I couldn't use that title anymore. So when I finally came up <laughs> with the um, Paris Blue, which is a much better title anyway, and I figured out what the point of my book was. And I won't say it here unless it really doesn't matter. Should we just do the spoiler alert? I'm just going to do it. Sure. Okay. Okay. You know, as you both know, since you read the book, when people see the title, they assume that the blue means sad, isolated, depressive. I've got the blues. It's Paris. Paris makes me sad. And you see how blue the cover is. And that's the Eiffel Tower. But in mm-hmm. fact, as you both know, the blue refers to something entirely different, which is a really nice surprise for readers. So I'm tempted to not say, but I'm going to say it anyway. The blue refers to, and the reason I called it a certain shade of blue, is that in the middle of one of our English lessons, I find out that Luke is colorblind. And blue is the only color that he can literally see. So it becomes a metaphor Later on, at first, I think, I can't believe it. He can't see all the greens and all the parks. He can't see my pink cheeks and the reds of these strawberries, the raspberries, the the fruit stands all over Paris. But then it becomes a metaphor for his limited vision of the world. And that blue um, represented what we did share, which was the music, the poetry, 
all the beautiful utopia, imaginary world, that was the blue that we shared. But that was all he could do. And he yeah. was so narrow that when it came to trying to put a Band-Aid on me, he couldn't do that either. He couldn't. He was just this very narrow vision. And so that's where the, that's where the title comes from. And so once I figured that out, then I knew I actually had a book. If you follow me. That is <laughs> so nicely tied with the bow. Okay, <laughs> Taking you. it all out. Everything fell in place. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I think this is a point where we had to ask you, um, how do we find your book? Where do we, where, where do we get this thing? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Well, for one thing, every single indie bookstore can order it. Okay. Because it's on, it's on their list, Ingram and everything. But the big evil empires do have it at the touch of a one click. Um, so you can find it on Amazon very fast and you'll get it tomorrow. And um, you can get it in soft cover, hard cover, or Kindle. And um, if you forget that, anyone can come to my website, which is just my name.com, julieskolnick.com. And I have links to all of those ways to order the book as well. The website also has a book trailer if people are curious for that. It has all of the author blurbs that these wonderful writers have sent me to put inside the book. It has the plot, has um. It's just, it's a very, very simple author website because it's my only book and will always be my only book. <laughs> so I don't have lots of things listed. I mean, I do have a website for the music series that I run, but they're not in the same thing anymore. I separated them. So. Very good. Well, we want to thank you for coming on our show. Um, yeah. Hopefully, maybe we'll look forward for your next book. Thank you. We'll have you come back again. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Um, Thank you, Emily. It's so great to meet you both. Oh, you too, Julie. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. So thanks again to you guys for tuning in to meet author Julie Skolnick. Be sure to buy her book, Paris Blue, a memoir of first love. It's available in hardcover, trade paper, and ebook at bookstores nationwide and online retailers such as Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and IndieBound. And we hope you had as much fun as we did learning about Julie and her book. Let us know what you think. You can find us on our social media channels where we also share photos of our adventures from around the world, interesting articles, and more. And if you're newer to our podcast, you can check out some of our older episodes where we talk about Florence, Toronto, and of course, France, to name a few. Meet Us in Paris is a University of California, Irvine Division of Continuing Education Production. If you need a career boost, looking to increase your workplace knowledge or seeking a new profession, check them out at ce.uci.edu for their professional courses. And once again, thank you guys for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.